Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. I'm speaking today to Matt Flinders, Professor of Politics and Founding Director of the Sir Bernard Crick Centre at the University of Sheffield. Matt's also Vice President of the Political Studies Association of the UK and Chair of the University's Policy Engagement Network. The latest themed issue of Global Discourse, edited by Matt Flinders, Dan Dagerman and Matthew Johnson, looks at the role of fear in politics and the pandemic and the role it can play in enabling societies to deal with crises. In an evolutionary sense, fear is a valuable thing, but it is often portrayed as a weakness and something to be ignored. Over the last year, we've been told to fear the virus and stay at home, but government policy and the actions of ministers have often contradicted this. What are the consequences of this confusion and how should we be thinking about fear in the context of policy and politics? So I'd like to welcome Matt Flinders, who will explain this more. Hi, Matt. Hi, thank you for having me on your uh, podcast today. Thank you for coming. Um, So to begin, why did you want to put together this special issue on the politics of fear and how did it come about? Well, it came about really through conversations with the editorial team and it came increasingly obvious to us that the social context in terms of the the emotional landscape of British politics and, and politics more broadly was shifting. And what we thought we could identify, although we didn't really understand, but we wanted to understand, which is why we developed this special edition, is that the politics of fear was changing. There was a new politics of fear. And also what was really interesting, although it became almost topical because of COVID, in many ways, what we we could see and identify is that we had a, a succession, wave after wave after wave of crises which were layering up upon themselves and in many ways affecting this new politics of fear. So is that crises like the financial crises as well? Yeah, the, the financial crises, climate change, the crisis of democracy. It's, it's almost harder to think of things that aren't now framed in narratives of crises. And in, in funny, yeah. one funny thing I often think is uh, there's a certain hyperbole nowadays that everything has to be framed in terms of a crisis. I think after a while that can begin to wear down people because there are real anxieties out there and being surrounded by commentaries about impending doom, gloom, catastrophe and chaos Mm. just adds to a rather broader social atmosphere. So it's no wonder really that our instinct is to push fear away. Um, Thinkers such as Nussbaum and Arendt um, depict fear as negative, irrational and apolitical. What has the effect of this pathologization of fear been on our emotional experience of threats, including COVID? Well, I mean, to some extent, fear is a natural emotion. And of course, within the literature that you just mentioned, there is often uh, a certain sense that fear is an, an irrational, it is a bad thing. And in many ways, what we've tried to do in this work is to look at some of the positive, positive elements of fear and how fearful can play a constructive role in society. I mean, fear at the end of the day is the emotion that we trigger as a safety check. The Mm. problem with fear is that if fear becomes too great, too overwhelming, 
like the rabbit that freezes in the headlights instead of keeping on running, it can become pathological. So one of the interesting elements of what we term the new politics of fear is about how to achieve, how to achieve a balance within the public. You want the public to be fearful so they change and affect their behaviour and accept certain restrictions. But you don't want them to become too pathologically scared because I think, what's the point? We'll do whatever we want. Um, right, OK, so it's like a tipping point in a way, it's, but it's yeah. A tipping point, and it's very yeah, okay. hard. Just on that point, the tipping point, thinking aloud, which I know is incredibly dangerous. But I mean, what's interesting about the tipping point is that it really also reveals long-standing um, uh, paradoxes of liberal democracy. Often fear demands that politicians take unpopular decisions. But those politicians yeah. are themselves trapped within the need to maintain a certain level of popularity. And we've had this with Boris. Boris isn't somebody that likes to give bad news. No. Um, so there is a very interesting dynamic about how do you control the fear factor, especially when different people, different social groups are more fearful than others or have less or more to fear. So fear isn't like a, a carpet or a blanket that we all feel the same. No, I think I've got a question about that later. But just to go back a little bit, um, why do you think so much of the discourse until now has approached fear in this kind of negative framework? Well, I think there is a, a basic evolutionary human nature element to fear. You know, when faced with a significant threat, there is a natural instinct towards fight or flight, you know. Yeah. Uh, the dinosaur comes and we're living in caves, we all go to the back of the cave, we light a fire, we do what we can. But most of all, and another interesting element, that when we are put in fe fearful situations, I think there is an, a, an, a very strong dynamic towards flocking to those we know and feeling safer amongst certain communities that feel similar to ourselves. There's a link here between sort of the whole rise of ethno-nationalism and people being fearful. Fear is often expressed in narratives of the other. Yes, yes. Politicians will seek to blame certain people. There's an obvious certain human nature element that if you are fearful, particularly if it is a more existential fear, you are looking around to find the scapegoat that you can use as a lightning rod for those frustrations and fears but it doesn't have to be rational it's just no. part of human nature but then you get that kind of polarization that starts to happen that then causes all sorts of other problems which again i think we'll probably get onto a little bit later in this um so given that basic human nature what are we scared of well, I think that's the really interesting point that links the previous question to human nature. There is a very big difference between the nature of the risk that is creating the fear. If, for example, to go back to our, you know, living in cave stone age element, old traditional fears used to be very tangible. You could see the dinosaur, you could see the lava coming down the volcano, you could see the things that you were actually scared of and that were real threats. What's interesting about the 21st century, which would link to work like Bauman's work on liquid fear, is that many of the threats 
that humans, societies, families, individuals are facing, they're not tangible. You can't pick them up like I can pick up my phone or the highlighter or pen. They're out there, but we can't grab them. They're existential. And I think in many ways, existential risks create more fear or a different form of fear than more tangible risks. So the great paradox of climate change is that we are aware of it, but we seem reluctant on a large scale to take dramatic action. Why? Because for most people in the world, climate change isn't directly affecting their everyday lived experience. If it did, they'd be more, far more likely to do something. The interesting thing with COVID is everybody knows COVID is around there, apart from some small number of deniers. But again, it isn't tangible in the way that you can see it, touch it, smell it. And yet we know it's out there. And that lack of tangibility, I think, opens up space around the framing and the narratives and the displacement of fear. So is, it, do you, is it, do you think that it's too scary and too big where it's intangible? It's, it's almost like a lack of control somehow. So even if we are afraid of something, we can't fight and we can't flight. Yeah, I think there's a, a, an issue about the layering of different fears and there might be another tipping point about human nature and how much inevitably any single man, woman can cope with. It's very interesting that just this week, the data on the increase in anxiety and depression under COVID has been published, you know, doubling of rates of anxiety and depression. That is linked directly to the focus of this special edition. It reflects a number of issues around social contact, about the need for feelings, belongings, emotional resonance, laughing, smiling, joking, running, touching. All these things are underplayed in politics, but they're incredibly important. We'll probably talk about them in a bit, but the framing issue is important because one of the articles in the chapter by Ruth Wodak explains very clearly how this new politics of fear is often very much based around how those fears are framed in different ways. And of course, different actors in society have different abilities in terms of manipulating, controlling and shaping that framing to match their own interests. So again, COVID itself is the source of the issue, but the politics will come from how different actors in society seek to use or abuse that challenge for their own instrumental benefits. So to bring it to a specific example, and I think Ruth Wodak's article talks about um, how some, some countries have been employing frameworks to mitigate the fear of death. Is it true to say that countries who didn't seek to minimise fear were more successful in controlling the pandemic? I think what's really interesting is that the ability of different countries to manage to recalibrate a more balanced approach to fear depended very much on pre-existing levels of public trust in politics. So, okay. for example, in those countries where there was broadly a high level of public confidence 
in officials and politicians, high levels of public trust in political institutions, political processes, it meant that when those political frameworks offered arguments to the public and asked the public to voluntarily behave in certain ways or to accept certain restrictions, the public was far more compliant and willing to follow and to uh, work together with politicians where those countries around the world where trust was a lot lower, I think it was a much bigger governing channel challenge for those governments to keep the public on side and keep the public loyalty to the law to the restrictions that they wanted to bring forward. I think it's a bit of that um, sense of trust and we're in it together. Um, and one of the key moments in like during the lockdown was um, Dominic Cummings going off to Barnard Castle. Um, I think one of the articles in the issue talks about that, doesn't it? Sure. Paul Faulkner's article, article is all about how do you win and lose public trust in politics and how that relents, relates to crises and the new politics of fear. If you step back a little bit and think about what is fear all about and what is it driving, fear is an emotion that craves protection. The question then is, who do the public look to on a collective scale for social protections. They look to the politicians and they look to the state. And as we were just saying, where there was already high levels of confidence that the state and politicians were generally trustworthy, I think the political relationship between the governors and the governed generally worked better than where that existing trust was already there. What you had happened, and what's interesting with this piece by Paul Faulkner, is that when Dominic Cummings went on his trip to Barnard Castle, it, it was a case study that slipped into a pre-existing narrative about you can't trust politicians or officials. It basically was symptomatic and, and narrated in terms of going back to Wodak's work on framing, as being all about there's rules for us, the public, we must lock down, restrict, not see our family, but very different rules for them, they can still do what they want. Now, you know, there are big questions around why did Boris Johnson stick so closely to supporting um, Cummings, there are questions about how realistic is it to think that one case study of one person could have such a big social effect, but there's no doubt that, particularly in a fearful context, when public emotions are already heightened, and particularly where the only news is about the crisis, so the media are looking for distinctive stories within that news cycle, the Cummings affair really did hit hard on public faith and confidence in how the government was responding. The issue is really interesting because you see that play out and you don't necessarily at the time relate it to fear. But when you talk about it now, you can see how fear just underpins so many of our emotions and reactions to things, doesn't it? So there's a need for these conversations that you're having to happen now. Um, just to follow up on that, I think what's really interesting about the, the you know, the Dominic Cummings affair, again, it really brought out this relationship between fear and fairness. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what, what's really interesting there is uh, I don't think. Well, well, what's interesting is that the, the public. Well, let me even say something slightly even more provocative. You might argue that when it comes to fear and the covid crisis, there's no such thing as the public. What you had were a multiple number of different publics, different groups in an increasingly polarised society post-Brexit, in which different groups have very different ideas about how fearful they should be and mm. therefore the extent to which it was fair for them to be expected to accept restrictions. Um, you see this in the generational tensions that have played out where people that felt fearful they were high-risk groups, the older generations, felt increasingly aggressive and angry about the behaviour of young people who were presumed, perceived to be not taking it seriously. Mm. Now, the interesting thing there is if you talk to the young people, they had a completely different set of feeling rules. They felt that actually what was happening was unfair to them, not to the older people who felt they were being put at risk. They were fearful, not for short-term health reasons, but they were fearful for the amount of public spending that the government was putting into trying to defeat the COVID pandemic because it was the younger generation that knew they were going to pick up the cost and the long-term impact of COVID was going to fall upon their shoulders, not upon today's politicians. And also like, fearful in the short term of what they're losing in terms of education and that kind of thing. And what, yeah, yeah. Um, it's incredibly complicated, especially because all fear is justified, isn't it, really, in a way? Oh, now that's a that's an interesting question. Is all fear just justified? Gosh, well, I would probably imagine not. That it's okay. one of the interesting things, not that I'm right or you're wrong, but I think it's an interesting point. I think one of the challenges that we have as a society nowadays, and this isn't a new point at all, is something around the social amplification of risks. Right, yes. We are, we are almost fearful of our shadows. Let me yes. give you a very practical example. This morning, my mother-in-law came round to the house and she hasn't been in anybody's house or garden for probably around a year. And a, a local neighbour had invited her around to her garden to see the plants. And she said she wasn't going to go and do this until the end of May. And this is beyond the current lockdown restrictions. So I said to her, well, why aren't you going to go and enjoy the plants? It's good for you. It's good for your mental health. You need to see people. She said she was too scared. But then I explained to her that she had more chance of actually being injured, hurt or killed walking down the road to the co-op every day than she did from being two metres away from somebody in a garden. Yeah. And so there is a, a danger that fear can become irrational and, of course, pathological, because particularly when it comes to being fearful of spending time with people, the savings that we might make in terms of risks to our physical health through COVID could easily be more than offsetted by massive damage done to our mental health. Yeah. Um, the government have almost benefited in a way from that irrational fear because it's been used, that's what they've used to um, justify their interference and in implementing the lockdown and fear 
fear is the reason we've all complied with the lockdown and mm. sensible um, acknowledgement of the science. How does that downplaying of fear in some areas and um, using fear in other areas work? How, how does the balance work? Well, I, I think there is a balance. And, and I think in some ways you can almost see it like an accelerator pedal that you push. Now, when COVID broke, this was a new global pandemic where there was very little information about how it would move, where it came from, its long-term implications, and at the time, no vaccine or cure. So you can understand governments around the world reacting with a very heavy foot on the fear pedal, let's call it. Now, what was very interesting, and I think there were, there were again, there were two dimensions. I think it's too easy to blame the politicians for fear mongering, is that politicians are ultimately going to be held to account for their failure or whatever they do to address the challenge. Hopefully. Hopefully. So there was an obvious incentive for politicians to try to insert major, immediate, pretty quick controls, even though in the UK they were actually possibly slightly too uh, reluctant to do so. But there was also, as I say, this tipping point. There is a sweet spot where you want people to be fearful enough to follow the restrictions and behave sensibly based on the strongest scientific evidence you've got. So you do want them to be living in some element of fear. But you don't want them to be absolutely scared, stiff, pathologically unwilling to do anything. Now, what was really interesting, I think, looking back, and of course, this will be analysed in great details and in major inquiries, is that what I think COVID has proved is that it is in many ways far easier to impose restrictions and far harder to take those restrictions off slowly. So for me, the interesting element around understanding fear was not about so much putting lockdown on, but it was trying to come out of lockdown slowly through a graded process. Interesting. Because particularly in the first couple of instances, what actually happened was the government attempted to slowly take its foot off the fear factor. The sun came out and bush, it was over. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. to some extent, there were major issues here. You know, looking back, the eat out to help out. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. Was a, it was a hundred million pound disaster, which could now, looking back, almost been designed to spread COVID. And of course, you know, my children said, well, let's go out and eat out to help out. It's free food. But it's not because it's, it's my amazing children. How, it's amazing yeah, how it's we can switch generation. off our fear, though, in a way. Yeah, like we, we were in the midst of a pandemic and then we were all eating out yeah. to help out. Yeah. And where does our fear and, go in that? And so by the time, by the time, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. By the time we got to the third lockdown, the government had learned this lesson that the worst thing you can do in any government is start to ease off the lockdown too early. Because once you do, you ain't going to be able to gradually put it back on again. It will be all or nothing. Yeah. So that brings us back to issues that it's not it's too easy to blame the politicians. There's a very interesting dialectical relationship between the politicians and different groups of the public. Yes. 
it's not and one big public versus there's not one big public yeah. and, and different elements of the public want very different things and they have different risk appetites you know you should be fearful of jumping out of a plane but if you want to do it and you've got that risk appetite and understand the risk you know this goes back to the whole you know john stuart mill arguments about you know understanding risk so mm -hmm. COVID has brought to a head and has in many ways provided a, a wonderful case study into understanding the, the sophisticated politics of risk and the role different players play. So we're talking about politicians and the public. Actually, what's really interesting about what's happened in the last year and is discussed in the special issue is that the role of the experts, the scientists, has become far more explicit. There's almost like a triangular relationship. There's an element of theatre to this. There's an element of performance. You know, I remember back to Brexit. Brexit, the experts were claiming the wrong thing. The experts predominantly were saying that Brexit was a bad idea for the British economy, we shouldn't do it. At that point then, the leading politicians largely try to dismiss sideline they've had enough of the experts the public yeah. were fed up of experts come covid when suddenly the political interests are in line with the scientific advice what we've had mm. is you could hardly get i'm doing some sort of you know funny movement here you could yeah. hardly get a cigarette paper between them and and again that was linked to the the search for credibility within this new politics of fear Politicians, when Boris stood at the lectern, mm. flanked physically by the two experts, the two chief scientific officer and the chief medical officer. Yeah. That was a performative dynamic that was highly political. It was Boris Johnson saying, I know you don't trust me. You don't believe me. I've got a reputation. However, look, I've got the two experts who you do trust and who are the experts by my side. Yeah. And of course, you know, the credibility of the experts talking about the scientific evidence and data and why it did matter and why the public should be fearful yet controlled yeah. was far more powerful and, I would argue, effective than could ever have been done by a politician on their own. The great yes. value, again, going back to the politics of fear, is that... There is a close link between fear and fairness and fear and retribution and blame. And what is going to happen at some point soon? And maybe this will be a whole new special edition for the journal. Just thought about that. Yeah. There will be a COVID backlash and very complicated blame games between okay. those actors about what was done, when, how things were framed, should they have been framed, were the statistics true? that will occur and of course the great benefit for the government in hugging the experts was that when they got tricky questions they were able to deflect them quite literally over mm. their shoulder oh i think that's one for i can't remember the chap's name now but witty witty chris witty yeah, chris witty and, and balance yes balance. yes and, and and so there is a really um there was a a very interesting blame avoidance strategy or blame management strategy happening within beneath this broader politics of fear. 
And we've not seen the end of that. And in that, lots of elements of the articles in the special edition, the framing, the comings, the broader issues about the fear of castration and other theoretical ways of understanding, measuring these very subtle dimensions will all come out to play in a very real world, mm. practical, the cold light of day. It's going to be interesting to see how things flip around when that analysis starts to happen, I think. Should definitely do another issue, another global discourse issue on that. Um, so looking at, just wanted to move on a little bit to look at policy specifically. Mm. Um, what impact has fear during the pandemic had on people's perception of policy? Um, in the introduction to the issue, you talk about a change in attitude towards universal basic income. That seems like quite a good example to go with. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things that political science has revealed and explored for decades is the relationship between crises and transformations. One of the silver linings of any crises is that they generally open up a window of opportunity because they're so disruptive. They create a window of opportunity which expands what's often called the Overton window. The range of policy options that are broadly perceived to be credible and worth consideration. In normal times, that window tends to be fairly small and narrow around established ways of how we do things. And there's a whole literature on path dependency which explains the institutional stickiness of all of that. Crises, poof, they expand things. And, 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 and this is one of the key things that very few people have really noticed that it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm talking to you today on the uh, 7th of May, the aftermath of the local elections, the Hartlepool mm -hmm. by-election, the yeah. mayoral elections. I'm sitting here when news is gradually coming through about the massive swing to the Conservative Party. Now, how do we understand that swing? If you were to look at most of the social scientific evidence, you would be expecting an incumbent government that had been charged with dealing with Brexit and then hit with COVID to be on its knees at the moment, to be absolutely, it's just imposed the biggest post-wartime restrictions on public freedom going. Yeah. And yet the Conservatives are 10% ahead in the poll and they're taken Hartlepool. Yeah. You almost couldn't meet, you couldn't make it up. Now this goes back to your question about policy space, policy opportunities is that what COVID has done, is, and actually what the fear has done, interestingly, is created a climate in which the Conservatives have credi credibly been able to dump many of their previous principles and values and instead adopt a far more social democratic, big state, big spend agenda. Yeah. So if you think today, how Keir Starmer must be feeling mm. and people saying to him you're not cutting through two reasons why in the middle of a covid crisis when people are scared and fearful not just about their physical health but about their jobs their future their children it's very hard for an opposition party to break through into the media everybody wants to know yeah. what the government is doing yeah but there's another element 
what the Conservatives have essentially done is they have moved into the centre ground, normal, dominant, social democratic space of much of the Labour Party's natural constituency. That's Especially in the last year, the Labour Party's moved closer to the centre as well, hasn't it? So that it's, it's tried to, but the Conservatives, yeah. you know, there's a massive literature on this. The Conservatives are very, very pragmatic as a party. They are much more willing to be flexible with their principles because they believe it's better to be in office and able to do something than out of office, but highly principled. So yeah. in many ways, what we've seen is this crisis and the related public behaviour, public attitudes, really open up new questions about the role of the state, the capacity of the state. Uh, a basic income is part of that narrative, which is starting to grow. Right. What, what is the realistic safety net that we can expect a modern state to deliver for the public? Interesting. Um... I suppose fear is, fear probably makes us more individualistic as well, doesn't it? So thinking of that safety net and welfare and stuff, people might become less likely to vote for policies that, for the many, um, when they're feeling fearful themselves. Yeah, I think there's a really important point there. And, I, and I'm not going to be able to articulate this very well, but, but let me have a go. What, there is a link between COVID and fear and Brexit and populism and the left behind arguments, which is all about what Archie Hochschild calls feeling rules. The rules that different groups in society have about how they should feel. Now, you might argue that in the 21st century, we should all feel that we want to help animals, save the planet, save the climate, look after asylum seekers. And most of us would actually agree that that is something we would want to do. But in terms of austerity and fear, particularly when precarity dominates the employment model, mm. there comes a point where people's feelings change towards a focus on themselves rather than on the others or on broader global themes yeah you 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 hunker down basically that's and your fight isn't it that's your, that is it, yeah. it's 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 the protecting those in your nest first yeah and, and i think what's happened and one of the elements with the, the with the left behind debate and, and Hochschild strangers in their own land really gets to this is that what we have in society now is, is a certain social polarization which, which is dependent upon different empathy walls, where different social groups can no longer understand why other social groups feel the way they do. Yeah. And it's how do we knock down those empathy walls? How do we challenge feeling rules and, and, and feel able to reject those feeling rules that we think are being pushed upon us? by others who don't live the lives we live. That's essentially what vast elements of the left behind in Stockton and Scunthorpe and Swindon are feeling. So there is, again, a, a very interesting link between the changing emotional landscape 
and the empathy walls and fear and hope are two components of that. If you look at Obama, we could have him as a flip side here. I've just been doing a review of his memoirs. Very, very interesting. But one of the key insights coming out of those memoirs is what he calls the life of living inside the barrel, which is what right. it's like to be a politician at the top in the front line of every social challenge and demand. And essentially, how he reflects is to look back. And his main acknowledgement is that if he failed, it was that he lifted up the Americans' hopes too high. Failure oh, yeah. almost became inevitable. And also, you know, he took on the public's fears and he almost became a lightning rod where people put upon his shoulders this idea that he could absolve all society's concerns, that he was some superman. And he's and never he, going to be able to deliver on that, yeah. He played into it, he benefited it to some extent, but again, there is that dual dynamic between fear and hope, and I suppose this whole conversation is about how do you sort of manage some equilibrium zone between the two. The trouble is if you're a politician, though, is that unless you make people believe in you, if you make people believe you can address their main fears, if you don't lift up their expectations higher than your other competitors, candidates, if you play it safe and tell them the truth, that realistically, if elected into office, there's not a huge amount you're likely to be able to do, you're never going to be elected in the first place. So politics traps people into almost playing a game with hopes and fears. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's what um, Keir Starmer's not done enough of. He's not really engaged in that emotional play at all, has he? And, um, and if you're, again, just thinking aloud, if you're a politician, you play it in two dynamics. You're trying to inflate the public's confidence, belief and trust in you while engaging in complex blame attribution to make people fearful of your competitors. Yeah. And again, you know, to his credit, Keir Starmer largely hasn't engaged in lots of that negative, aggressive, True. toxic it, campaigning. And I'm not trying to say he should do. Yeah. I think, again, going back to that notion of the politics of fear, the key challenge in a British context for Keir Starmer is outlining a vision, a narrative that people can believe in and connect with yeah. at an emotional level, the feeling that he understands their lives. Yeah. It feels like in lots of discourse, we've got kind of to this point underestimated how important emotions are, doesn't it? Um, I think so. I think, yeah. I think it's a real big issue. It's a big issue for academics. I mean, I think yeah. academics uh, have great strengths in terms of bringing a depth of knowledge and expertise and scientific analysis Mm. Well, that knowledge is completely wasted in terms of underlining its social relevance unless it is matched by a big dollop of emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I just think that, you know, um, just as we might want our politicians to be slightly less robotic and to have a little bit more emotional intelligence, I think with an academe recognising the need to... Um, frame what we do and why it matters 
in stories that the broader public can connect with and understand is a key challenge going forward in an academic landscape where knowledge exchange impact and relevance is only going to get more important. Yeah, so thinking about going forward, my final question um, is how do you hope this issue of global discourse specifically is going to advance our understanding of the politics of fear? What do you hope the issue will achieve? Well, I have, and I know my co-editors have three real ambitions for this special edition. First of all, basically, we want to encourage other academics to follow Eleanor Ostrom's guidance about challenging dominant self-evident truths. Fear, we're not trying to say that fear is a good thing, but what we are trying to do is cultivate a more balanced, more sophisticated understanding of fear, levels of fearfulness, framing of fear, and is antonyms about how it relates to issues of hope and modern governance. That flows into a second aim. As we were just saying, I think predominantly the social and political sciences haven't really paid enough attention to the role of emotions and feelings in society. There's a certain sense that feelings are soft, cosmetic, Female? Yes. And, and actually, what's interesting there for an academic is, and we've seen this, we've seen this with Brexit, it doesn't matter how much evidence an expert or an academic or an advisor gives you, how much data they have about why you shouldn't feel the way you do. If you feel scared, feel depressed, fear, feel fearful, feel something is unfair, that isn't going to be changed by giving people more, 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 more data that they're wrong. No. And yet you can't deny the relevance or reality of those feelings that people hold. You know, this was it with Brexit. You know, there was a certain sense that a cosmopolitan elite looked down upon the views of the left behind. When actually the left behind's feelings that the system wasn't fair were actually true themselves and inequality is growing. Um, and, and then there's a, a final thing that I would love to come out of this, and that is to get beyond the uh, seminar room and the, uh, the, the lecture theatre. I would love this volume to play some role more broadly in underlining why the social and political sciences matter. Many of the articles, if not all of them, have a very clear policy relevance. Policy relevance in terms of actually explaining why things did or didn't happen. Policy relevance in terms of providing new ideas and ways of thinking about topics. And policy relevance just purely in terms of promoting important conversations about where we're going as a society, what the options are, and why it matters that the public do have some input and control over the new politics of fear. I really hope things like this podcast help to broaden that reach. It's uh, speaking to you, it's just such a relatable issue and every, you kind of get everything that's in this special issue. And um, yeah, so it's about challenging what we see as the truth. Can and I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think about the concept of castration anxiety and the sexual hole? Um, 
in relation to the politics of fear? Yeah, there's an article in this collection uh, which is all about castration anxiety. It's very Freudian. So is this to do with male and female, um, how we relate to emotions and fear as men and yeah, women? Yeah, uh, and, right. and, and eunuchs and all this sort of it. Basically, it says that um, the basis of people's fears all relate back to sex, sex acts, parts of the body, and our fear that we're being castrated playing itself out. Well, I haven't read that article, being honest, but all throughout throughout this podcast, I've kept wanting to talk about um, why is it only now that we're talking about emotions and feelings in the context of politics? Um, mm. And is that because um, of that male anxiety about emotions? So I think there is a very big, broader politics of emotions here. And what's interesting in, in recent years is there has been something of a groundswell shift in talking about mental health i myself have got a big a big history of mental health challenges i'm very open about them the funny thing is when i'm open about them and tell other people they generally tell me about their own as well or somebody they know close to them and we've all got them we don't talk about them which yeah. really does relate back to this discussion of fear however what i would say is two things is that politics is still a highly masculinized endeavor and profession Mm -hmm. We have had a, a, a small number of politicians far more willing to talk about their own mental health challenges. We've only ever had one president or prime minister in the world who's come out and admitted they were suffering from depression. The good thing is that they took time off, came back, became prime minister again, and then were re-elected. Mm. What's, what's interesting in this and takes us back to this paradox of the public is the public often say they want normal politicians, normal men and women why can't we have normal people in politics mm. if you want normal people you've got to accept that one in four is likely to have at some point in their lives a mental health challenge yeah and yet when you look at the survey data about candidate selection all around the world it says unfortunately the same thing would the public vote for a candidate that admitted they'd have mental health challenges no and that's yeah. a rather sad i think reflection of an underpinning stigma about mental challenges in some ways identifying you as fundamentally weak or maybe even uh, dangerous. In fact, one of the most interesting projects I've got going on at the moment is actually not looking at the politics of mental health. It's looking at the mental health and well-being of politicians and how do politicians cope with the stress. Interestingly, in the COVID, um, there was a, one interview when the vaccines had just been signed off and Matt Hancock started to break down in an interview. In my sense is the guy was just exhausted. I mean, yeah. just, just think, whether you're a Conservative or a Labour or whatever, just think how it must have felt to be the health secretary responsible in the time of the coronavirus. Most people would have been crushed within seconds, including myself. So exactly. how do we support people that have stepped into the arena politically how do we support people from different backgrounds with the mental pressures and strains of serving? And also, we increasingly need to understand, again, it's like fear, that um, the pressures of politics don't fall equally on everybody. Women, unfortunately, receive far more abuse, disgusting aggression and threats, new security measures put in place. How do we create an environment where, realistically, politicians 
um, have the mental health necessary to do their job properly. Mm. And uh, going back to the men and women thing, if the female politicians didn't have to spend so much time dealing with the abuse they get constantly, then they probably would have more space to be bringing this emotional acknowledgement into the space. And maybe you'd get more female politicians and that would change the whole structure and the way we think about emotions and politics anyway. Well, I, th I think I, I was reading Alastair Campbell's uh, book about surviving depression the other day, and he did make an interesting comment about how he thought that to some extent you had to be mentally imbalanced to go into politics. And I think that's a real problem for society, actually, that we are in danger of making our political system so aggressive, so corrosive, so destructive, mm. that only people with the skin of a rhinoceros yeah. will go into politics. And all those really brilliant young men and women from Scunthorpe, Doncaster, Swindon and wherever, they'll think there's no way I'd ever go into that. But they're just the sort of people we need. So this well, is a much broader conversation. But this, this special issue and global discourse and bring, talking about politics of fear and emotions is all stepping stones to getting towards that, isn't it? I hope it's all part of a broader process about cultivating a more mature discussion about the balance between mental health and physical health and just as you have to look after your physical health you've got to look after your mental health and if you have a problem with your mental health it's not the end of the world you just need to look after yourself get support in very similar ways to how it would be with the physical health yeah absolutely um, that's a good note to end it on uh, <laughs> thank you i enjoyed that conversation matt that was great um to find out more about this themed issue of global discourse on the politics of fear, edited by Matt Flinders, Dan Dagerman and Matthew Johnson, visit our website, which is at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.